My guest is Charles Graham, born into a family in southeast Arkansas, working the cotton fields on the landowner's farm. His amazing journey is from the cotton fields to singing before kings and presidents. Charles's story is of struggle and triumph, a journey of faith, family, and dreams come true. His book is No Back Doors. We'll visit with Charles Graham about that title. Welcome. This is the Unconventional Ministry Podcast, where the conversation is about fresh ideas in ministry, innovative approaches, and collaborative efforts. I'm your host, Dennis Weens, Vice President for Ministry Partnerships at SAT7 USA. My guest today is Charles Graham, who grew up in southeast Arkansas. Folks worked for a landowner, and so he grew up working the cotton and bean fields. And Charles has an amazing story of how God has blessed him, and he's sung before kings and presidents, now has a ministry that he's going to talk about. So, Charles, welcome to this Unconventional Ministry podcast. Thank you, my brothers. Pleasure and a blessing to be with you. I just finished reading your book, No Back Doors, and there were a lot of back doors in your life, but we want to talk about how God's opened your doors of opportunity. But I think it's important that people understand where this story starts in Southeast Arkansas. So why don't you just give an idea of uh, to our listeners of where your journey of faith, your journey there on the farm in Southeast Arkansas. Talk to us a little bit about that uh, early stage of your life. Sure. I was born and raised in Southeast Arkansas. I'm one of 13 children. I am number five in the birth order. Um, And so my parents, uh, my father was a hired hand uh, on a farm in Southeast Arkansas. And so the farming community where we grew up was pretty much the way of life for so many, especially African-American people. So the world I grew up in was where my father was this hired hand and he went to work every morning and we were provided a house through the landowner that my father worked for, but those houses did not have indoor plumbing. I did not get indoor plumbing until I was a junior in high school. Uh, and we had actually moved off of the, the land into this little town uh, where I grew up. But starting out, because my father worked for the landowner, he did provide a house for us to live in and all of the workers that was on his uh, property. But as I said, the house was nothing more than a shack no indoor plumbing. So we had to collect water from a pump. And this is the pump with the handle that you have to prime with water. When I tell my friends this story, they're thinking, wait a minute, how old are you? But no, in my lifetime, born in 1956, uh, this was the community in the world that I, I, I started life in. So I just read your book, No Back Doors. And that's an interesting title, and for you as an African-American growing up on a farm, working for a landowner, I know in your book you talk about some of the back doors of your childhood, and even into college there were back doors. Talk to us a little bit about that title of that book. In 1956, when I was born, it was prior to public school integration. 
So I was born into a community. Uh, the conditions of my community were such that as a black person, there were still very much definitive lines of racism in the community. And of course, as a child, you don't recognize them. I, I grew up in a little town where you would drive into town to go shopping. My parents would go shopping when we come off the farm, which was very rare, but occasionally we would go into town and you would see the doctor's offices that would have two doors. One was for blacks to enter and the other door was for whites to enter. There was one restaurant in our little town and I discovered as I grew up, blacks were not allowed inside the restaurant. If we wanted a meal from the restaurant, we'd have to collect our meal at the side door and pay the person at the side door. So those are the things that you grow, grow up in and you're not fully aware of them as a child. It becomes second nature. It's just the conditions in which you're born and raised. So there was a real definite division between the races, which carried into the churches, to the schools, and into private life. But with parents that loved God, I grew up going to church. And so when my father, the landowner purchased new land, we would all move to wherever the new land was, and we'd work the fields. Um, and the title of the book, which is my story, No Back Doors, was taken from the fact that when we would go and work the fields, chopping cotton, uh, weeding beans, occasionally we would get paid at the back door of this beautiful old plantation looking house. And the only consolation for work in the fields was that I, because our house was a four room house with as many at one time as 10 children in this house. The only consolation for work in the fields was that I got to get paid at the back door of this house. And as I was getting paid, I would try and look around the landowner and into the house to see what it looked like, because it was the most impressive, big, white uh, house that I, have ever, I had ever seen. And it was, to me, the epitome of being rich. Um, so to see this house and realize that the house that I was living in was only four rooms without indoor plumbing, uh, and at times very dodgy electrical. We had kerosene lamps in case the power did go off. And we had propane over time, but originally we only had wood heaters and a wooden stove. So it was quite a journey. Um, and so the book title is No Back Doors, which you'll we'll talk about later where God, after 33 years of being away from Arkansas, he brought me home. And I was blessed to now own the property where, as a child, I was only allowed at the back door. I know your book talks about you standing at that back door of that landowner's house, and you would see cars speeding on the horizon, and you would feel the pull of destiny. Now, I know that uh, your personal model, and I want you to talk a little bit about this model, love has to be a lifestyle you live, not a banner you wave a demonstration, not a declaration. And that personal model of you started early in your life, even you know, as you describe your childhood, your junior high years, uh, that became your model. Right. One of the things I'm very thankful and appreciative of are parents that really did have a faith in God. And in spite of the conditions of the community that I was in, 
coming home always brought a balance of faith, an introduction of God. Not that my walk with God as a child or as a young teenager did not have its challenges because I would go to church and hear of God's goodness only to return home and to an environment that seemed to have been far from what I just heard in church about God's goodness. It's hard to hear about God's goodness when you're living in a community and you're recognizing the injustices or the imbalance of, of, of humanity. And so I would question that and to the point that in high school, I approached two of my teachers. One was a typing teacher who I knew loved the Lord, was a Christian. So I asked her one day, what would happen if I came to her church? And she actually cried at her desk and said, Charles, I am so sorry to say that if you came to my church, people would actually walk out because you are black. And uh, I asked my shop teacher that same question, who was also a white gentleman, uh, Christian. And I asked him what would happen if I came to his church. And he thought for a moment and said, if I was a deacon on the door that Sunday, I would have to refuse you entry. And so as I was growing in my faith and in my knowledge of God, I found a real challenge between racially divided community. And I really came to terms to understand that a non-believer, I didn't expect them to embrace equality, but I did expect Christians to. So my shift went to trying to understand why Christians, black or white, could not accept each other. So I didn't have a problem with racism or prejudice with non-believers, but I grew as a teenager to be very challenged by racism from Christians. And uh, you, we don't have time to talk about the whole story. They'll have to read your book, and I encourage them to get your book on Amazon. But this continued. You went to a Christian university, and you still yes. face these same issues from the Christian community. And I know that you were part of the music team, the choir, and as you traveled, some churches wouldn't let the choir perform because you were part of the choir. So this isn't just something in that little town. This was in the church in America. This was in a Christian university that you faced some of these issues, right? Right. Growing up in the community, you become uh, acclimated to the customs and the nature of the community, but it wasn't until I left to go to college, which even as a kid working in the fields, I did dream a lot, uh, which I think was the reason I was not the best cotton picker or cotton chopper. My dad was always getting on me because I never had a love for farming or the fields. I was always dreaming about what God had for me. What was my plan? What was his purpose for my life? And I loved music and I loved traveling. Even though I had never traveled, I had a desire to travel. And my first major prayer and dream was to go to college because no one in my family had gone to college at that point. And so I'm dreaming about going to college. And of course, when you have limited resources and you're growing up in a community where your parents were extremely poor, college seemed like an impossible uh, reality. But I kept dreaming. And what happened, an interesting part of going to college was in this school where we had 
integrated in my junior high year. And we struggled through that whole integration system within the community and within the schools at the bumps and the bruises to try to maneuver through integration, which was not an easy task for my community. But to my surprise, there was a family that moved in, part of the local White Baptist Church. And one of the minister's son was in my music class at school. And we became real good friends. And so I had gone to Oklahoma my junior year in high school to Oral Roberts University. Fell in love with the campus, but in my senior year, I received a letter saying that I had been accepted, but financially we were not able to go. So I was very crushed. And my new friend, whose father was an associational missionary for the Baptist in my hometown, the white Baptist churches, his son became my friend. And so when he realized that I was very disappointed, he went home and told his parents of what had happened. So the next day, I was invited by my friend, uh, Robert. We called him Bubba. And I told him that if he was going to live in the South, Bubba was a good name to have. So he became a good friend. And so Bubba invited me to their home the very next day and wanted me to meet his parents. And so I had never been in the home of a white person, so other than to work. Um, But I went down, I'm thinking just for a visit to meet his parents. And we sat in the living room, we visited for a little bit with his parents. And then shortly after that, his mother went into the kitchen and prepared the meal to my surprise. And then she said, dinner is ready. So they invited everyone into the dining room. So I found myself as a high school senior for the first time sitting at the dining room table of a white family. And we had a wonderful meal. I did not expect it. And afterwards, we went into the living room and Reverend Garvin began to share the story of having heard that I was disappointed about not being able to go to college. And he shared with me about a college that he worked with in Missouri. And God used him and his precious family to get me to this campus at uh, Christian School in uh, Southern Missouri. And I'm excited. I'm thrilled. Uh, so I, my brother drives me to college and the further North we travel, the fewer blacks we saw, you have to understand. I lived in the town where there were predominantly black population in my little hometown. So not seeing any blacks as we traveled North concerned my brother, but I was thrilled. We were headed to college for me. I was, nothing was going to spoil my dream or, uh, rob my heart of his joy. But as we, Travel north and saw fewer black people. My brother looked at me and said, are you sure God told you to go to school here? I said, yes. And he said, well, if you come up missing, I'm not coming looking for you. We get to the campus. I am just ecstatic and just thankful. I pray that night, thanking God for the journey, only to discover that even at that level, there were Christians who had not uh, come to understand the love of God in such a way that we could love all people. I served on a panel at that school in the sociology class where me and the other African-American male students were on this panel. And you have to understand in 1975, when I entered this school, there was one other black male student that came along with me that were not recruited as an athlete. So 
I was not aware that basketball was a stereotype for blacks. So on the campus, everyone kept mistaking me for one of the basketball players. And I honestly thought it was because my good friends were these little short white guys I was standing alongside of. So I was not aware. So green, being green served a good purpose uh, while on campus. But I soon recognized that the same ideas that I encountered in my little small town in the church was some of the ideas and uh, thoughts that I encountered with the church population there at this little school. And uh, there were many things that happened while there that could have crushed my spirit, but God so protected me. And I, I'm thankful for that. One was wanted to do music. I loved music, but I did settle for an art major. And I was walking down the music corridor and I, I, I decided to try out for a voice lesson or enroll in a voice lesson. So I enrolled in the voice lesson. It was a 30 minute voice lesson. And I was so excited. I'm far enough from my family and community. I'm just, I'm going to do music. And she was very nice, the instructor. I walked in, introduced myself. I sat down, we talked. And after 15 minutes of being in her presence, she interrupted me and said, let me just share with you that I strongly advise you not to do music. And so needless to say, I was extremely crushed. And as I left the building, her that, that room, I was walking further down the corridor of the building, and I was then standing in front of the my counselor, uh, Mr. Larry Roots, the art professor. He was my personal advisor assigned to me. And I walked into his office trying to hold back my tears and my hurt, my disappointment. And I shared with him what had happened. And he said, Charles, let me just let you know. Let me share something with you. Never let someone talk you out of what you feel God has placed in you. And he said, just hold on to your dream. And that was very comforting and administered to me. The hurt was still there, but I left his office with a measure of hope in my heart. And from that, God has been so gracious. I'm so thankful for Dr. Roots. I continue to look to God, even in extreme adverse circumstances and situations. And when I faced difficulties um, on that campus, one day I found myself sitting outside of the math room, the only African-American in the class, but somehow the class was too full for one more student. And so the teacher sat my desk just outside the door of the classroom. So it would be as if I had to peer around the door just to get involved in my math class. Obviously, I think anyone looking at that would think this would be not an acceptable thing to happen, to have the only African-American in your class sitting literally outside the door. So there were things like that that happened. But again, I was not disillusioned with God. It would, there were rough moments, difficult times, but so many wonderful things happened there as well. I discovered wonderful friends, beautiful instructors. Uh, and so in the midst of the challenges, God was still showing me his presence. And, and this is happening in the late 70s in the Midwest. Yes. That's, that's amazing to me. 
I want to I want to go now to you know God put music in your heart, and you've recorded nine at least nine CDs already, and you've sung with some well-known artists, Christian artists. God continues to open doors. Uh, you've traveled the world in ministry. Let's uh, let's move now to what you're doing presently, because that's an amazing story. Because you now own the land that uh, God has made it possible for you to now own that property. So talk a little bit about your ministry, your music, your recording, so these albums, and how God has enriched your life and given you this global ministry. As you heard, growing up on the farm, and you saw so many lives that just always centered around the farm. They never left. Uh, some of my siblings just never left, not necessarily farming, but they never left the community. But with my desires to leave, God was, has been so gracious. He's allowed me to travel from that small community to, like I said, I went to college uh, there in Missouri, went on to Bible school in Oklahoma, and went from there to live in Southern California and work with a dear friend of mine in establishing a church involved in music ministry and youth ministry while in California. And God began to open doors overseas, the first door being a missions trip to uh, South America uh, with a very some dear friends out of a church in St. Louis. And then from there, went to the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, on to Norway, Germany, France, uh, Italy, South America, Canada, Israel, and Estonia. So no one is more amazed than I am at God's goodness to see that God so answered those childhood prayers that I prayed in the fields in Arkansas. And one of the scriptures that has always been a real blessing to me is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. Um, as, as a young adolescent, and even into my teenage years, I used to question God's goodness. And people would say, he knew you. And I know the scripture says, before we were formed in our mother's womb, he knew us. But there were times I just wondered, God, if you knew me, then why all of this? only to live in the Lord long enough for God to show me that in spite of what I thought, he did know me and he did hear my prayers. He did answer my prayers. I did get to walk in answered prayers that God uh, provided for me in spite of where I was born and the conditions that I was born into, God still moved in my life and provided major blessings and so just traveling around the world, not only did I enjoy the journey, but I realized that as I traveled, I, I met people and I had opportunities to process the hurt, the disappointment, and the pain of my life just through the diversity of people, finding people that, I, that loved me and accepted me and, and embraced my life when they were of a different nationality and maybe even a different faith. So I began to experience the tangible expression of God's love and that helped me heal. And it helped me to, to be a person that would love. Um, and so in that 30 some years of traveling around the world and meeting 
God in so many different places. Um, while in California one day, I felt like God was stirring in my heart. It was time to move again. And my pastors who I'd worked with for those 25 years in California retired. And at their retirement, I felt a release to, to, to move. Wasn't sure where God was saying, went to England, possible uh, opportunity to work in a Bible school and discovered that that was not God's plan. Came back to the States, went to Missouri, went to Georgia, uh, went to Tennessee. None of those places I felt God's peace. So I said, God, I'll just stay in California until you tell me where you want me. Travel back to Arkansas like I had done for many years, seeing my family. And while traveling through my little hometown, I waved at the men and women that uh, spent the day drinking under a tree there, not far from what we call Skid Row. I'd wave to them every year. I'd go home. But this particular time, as I waved to them, they, they would always wave back. And this time when that happened, my waving and their waving back, it was as if I saw for the first time their faces. And God used that moment to speak to my heart. And, and from, from that point to where I arrived at my mom's home, God said to me in my heart that I'm going to bring you home. I'm moving you home, which... You have to understand, when I left in 1975, I said I would never live in Southeast Arkansas. I was going to be as far removed from the pains, hurts, and disappointments as I could. But over the 30-plus years of being away, God resolved the issues of, of my heart. And when he said, I'm bringing you home, it took another two years for that to manifest. But uh, in the process of coming home, the property that was for sale was actually the property of this house where I had worked the fields and to think that God would bring me home. And I just said, God, if you're bringing me home, is this a part of the journey? And it was, um, I ended up purchasing the property. It's a hundred acres and the house was renovated shortly after my moving back, uh, in about 2009. And it is now a ministry retreat facility, a place for people in ministry to come and rest from around the world. Uh, so I just really saw a need for ministers and their families to have a, a place to sabbatical. And so God has been so gracious in the years that he's allowed me to have it. We've seen a little over 600 uh, pastors and families from around the world come and, and just rest at the fountains. Well, thank you for this. I want to invite people to leave note there in the comments uh, like this, and I'm sure uh, you have friends that would benefit from hearing Charles's story. So uh, share this podcast with your friends, and uh, it's an amazing story. And Charles, I know in your book you talk about uh, a wedding that took place in that home that you now own that's a ministry center. Uh, there was a wedding that took place, the, the grandson of the landowner, when yes. you were a kid— Yes. Uh, there's a story there that's very amazing. Can you share well, that with us? Yes. My dear friend, Daryl Campbell, helped me. he co-authored the book with me. He's an amazing writer. So as God released me to share my story at this stage, after being back in Arkansas for 10 years, is when God allowed me to release to tell the story. And, uh, and I, I realize the timing of telling the story is so important. Because if we tell the story of our pains and our hurts before there's a healing, all people can do is, is maybe hurt with us. Um, but if you 
can share your pains from a position of being healed, then there is no pain for them to carry for you. And so I didn't realize the measure or the degree in which God had brought healing to my heart until I came back home. And I think he brought me home just to uh, give me an opportunity to know the measure of forgiving and healing that he had done in my heart and in my life. And so over those 10 years, I have been so blessed to walk alongside of both of those teachers and their families, uh, the community, and I have just so thoroughly enjoyed it. But while renovating the house, uh, the landowners that I bought it from, his son was living in Texas, and he knocked at the door one Christmas early on before I had even moved into the house. We were beginning the process of renovating it. And his dad said to him, you've got to go out to the farm and see what Charles is doing. So Stephen came to visit. Uh, I had not seen Stephen in probably 35 plus years. When I was 16 and Stephen was six, I was working in the fields for his grandfather at that time. And I was a very slow cotton picker and cotton chopper. So I was standing on the end of the turn row as a 16-year-old and the grandfather drove up with his grandson, get out of the pickup truck. And the grandfather always looked like the typical landowner with his Stetson, a white shirt, khakis, and boots. And standing next to him with his little six-year-old grandson, also a Stetson, white shirt, khakis, and boots. Um, and so the grandfather proceeded to call for the foreman of the field, who was all the way on the far end of the field, and, and, and his attempt to call him, he was calling for him and calling for him and calling for him. But obviously the foreman and the other workers could not hear him. So this little grandson, six years old, looks up at his grandfather and he says, Oh, Paul, them niggers don't hear you. And so the grandfather, being a little shocked because I was standing very close to them. So he looks at his grandson and looks at me and he goes, Ah, hush, Stephen. And so they got in the truck and they left. And it left me with my thoughts and and the reality of having heard that, I knew it was said, but I'd never really heard it until that was the first time hearing a white person uh, say that in my presence. So I'm, I'm dealing and processing with that thought, and you go on with life. Forward all these years, I get the knock at the door, and this little six-year-old boy now is a grown man, and he's standing at my door, which was at one point his home. He walks in and uh, I invite them in and uh, he was complimenting me on the, the things that uh, the, the changes that were taking place and we were renovating it, the house. And he showed his girlfriend who was with him, his old bedroom and his, he was one of two. He had a sister and he showed his girlfriend, his sister's bedroom. She had a winter bedroom and a summer bedroom. So we were talking and we had a good visit and I was delighted to show him around and visit with him. And when he left, I gave he and Barbara, uh, his girlfriend, a, a few CDs. And about three days later, I get a phone call from him. And he said, brother Charles, first of all, it was a pleasure to see you and thank you. And you're doing a great job renovating the house. And thank you for the CDs. Barbara and I pretty much cried all the way back to Texas and I need to send you a check because she has copied it and given them to as many people here as she can. And I said, there's no need for a check. I'm just glad that if it blesses you and it can bless others, that's uh, a reward enough. 
But he said, what I'm calling you for is because when we returned to Texas, I asked Barbara to marry me. And uh, then I asked her, what would be her ideal wedding? And she said, I would love to go back to Arkansas and get married where you grew up and have Brother Charles perform the ceremony. And she said, so I'm asking you, would you perform our ceremony? And I said, I would be honored and delighted to do so. And so they came, we made preparations. We had the wedding standing just a few feet from where at the age of six and I'm 16, we were standing a few feet from where that encounter took place all these years later. Um, and his family was there, a lot of the people. So it was an amazing moment. But that's when I realized that God spoke to my heart. Coming home, it wasn't enough to just say that you love the people. That's when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, love has to be um, a lifestyle you live, uh, not a banner you wave. It has to be in demonstration and not just a declaration. So given the opportunity to perform Stephen's wedding uh, was a blessing from God. Saying yes to it was uh, my saying to God, yes, thank you for my healing. And, and the Bible loves, 1 Corinthians 13, loves does not remember the wrong that was done to uh, him. And so it was a great opportunity for me to know what was in my heart. And Stephen and I are very dear friends. I've stayed in their home. They come and stay in my home. And it's just a grateful exchange of life. And one morning, I was able to share that story with Stephen as he sat at my kitchen counter. I, I asked him for permission to share this story in the book and uh, in ministry around the world. And as I shared it with him that moment, that morning, he dropped his head and he said, Brother Charles, I am so sorry. I said, he said, please forgive me. I said, Stephen, there's no need to forgive you because you were six. He said, all I did and said was what I heard my, me, mom, my papa say. I said, I understand that. I want you to know that when you asked me to perform your marriage, uh, it was an honor. And so it has been an absolute blessing. And I hope the book ministers the redeeming love of God, his ability to redeem our lives. And I tell people, my back doors may not be your back doors, but we all have back doors of pain, hurts, and disappointments. And uh, God continues to redeem those hurts and those pains and those disappointments in my life. To tell today, my greatest joy is serving my community and loving. And people say, Charles, what an amazing story that you get to own the house where you were not allowed to, to enter as a kid. And you own the easement of the bayou where you were baptized. What an amazing story. And that is an amazing story, but that's not the story. The real story is that God would allow me to go home and serve my community. And to me, that's the greatest part of the story. Um, because in order to do that, you must know God's love and give God's love. And I'm thankful for his forgiveness and his ability to help me to live in forgiveness. Well, thank you for sharing. And that's just one of many stories in the book. So I encourage our listeners to look for your book, 
No Back Doors by Charles Graham. It's a lesson for all of us that we need to learn. How can people learn more about your ministry there? Uh, you have a website. How can people get more of your uh, CDs? You've got a cr- special like Christmas CDs, different CDs. Uh, where can people get more information? Thank you, Brother Dennis. Yes, the website is charlesgrahamministry.com. Uh, Charles Graham Ministry, singular, dot com. And uh, the email is charlesgraham2000 at yahoo.com. It's a blessing. I love sharing God's goodness uh, because to whom much is given, much is required. So he has forgiven me greatly, and I am enjoying the journey of loving and forgiving. Amazing and faithful to my life and ministry, I'm thankful. And if people want you to come and speak, you got a, a, a very busy schedule, but uh, you do speak uh, in churches. I heard you at a church in Kansas City not too long ago, and I know that you've recently been to California, so you do travel. And if you want to have Charles come and share this uh, story uh, of his life and uh, forgiveness that's come and his incredible ministry, not only in Arkansas but around the world, I know you've been to Africa as well, And so uh, get in touch with Charles. Again, his book is No Back Doors by Charles Graham, and uh, you'll enjoy it. You'll learn from it, and it'll help uh, work through issues that we all face. And so, Charles, I thank you for joining us on this Unconventional Ministry podcast, and this is uh, a refreshing uh, story of God working in a life and transforming attitudes of your friends and uh, helping you come to a place of forgiveness And so I encourage people to read that book, and they can bring uh, change and uh, forgiveness in their own lives as well. So again, thank you, Charles, for joining us. I enjoyed meeting you, Brother Dennis, and your wife uh, at the service there in Kansas City. So thank you for allowing me to have this opportunity. I appreciate God's ministry in your heart and in your life. So I pray God will continue to fulfill and bless you as you, you serve him. In our changing world, there are more ways than ever to do ministry. SAT7, as a broadcast media ministry, is changing how ministry is done. Through innovative approaches, collaborative efforts, broadcast satellite television, web streaming, and social media, SAT7 is making a difference. Visit SAT7 online today at sat7usa.org to learn ways you can be a part of this kingdom work. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. If you know of an unconventional ministry approach, please introduce us. We'd like to have them on as guests. Thank you again for joining this episode of the Unconventional Ministry Podcast. Mm